Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit, and this week my body aches from painting my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, and I accidentally stared at my coworker's feet for way too long this week. Oh boy. Well, okay. She like was came into work and was like, Cameron, look what happened to my feet. And she kicked off her shoe. And I don't know why I was expecting there to be like a wound on her foot. That was just my immediate association. And I looked down her feet and like nothing was wrong with it. And so I was just staring at her foot. And I guess she I decided that wasn't enough emphasis. So she kicked off her other shoe. And I was now I'm looking back and forth between these two feet like an absolute <laughs> creep. And before I realized that her toes are like her toes look painted like very nicely. And then I'm like, oh, did you get a pedicure? She's like, yeah. Like, you could have just said that instead of making me stare at your Wait. feet for, like, a solid 20 seconds. <laughs> okay, I just feel like if someone's going to say, look what happened, you assume it's an injury. Yeah, also, I just injured my leg the other day, so that might have... So the pain was on your mind. <laughs> yeah. How did painting go? Oh, oh, horribly. Absolutely horribly. <laughs> there's paint on my ceiling. There's paint everywhere. Uh, but such is life. <laughs> Isn't that the intent of painting your apartment? <laughs> uh, well, we were painting the walls, not the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see why that's a problem now. Yeah, well... Hey, what are you going to do about it? Such is life. Such is life. Well, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our apparently very stressful weeks with some Russian literature <laughs> and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be reading Andrei Sinyavsky's Pence. If you're interested in helping out the show, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We have a lot of really fun Patreon-only content and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not interested in Patreon, but would prefer to still interact with us in a different way off the podcast, you can check our website or in the show notes for a link to our Discord, where we're currently doing a lot of discussion around our Summer of Anna Karenina series, which uh, started last week and will be continuing over the summer. Uh, you can also, if you would like to support the podcast in a free way, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for all the updates. And before we get into reading this very weird story, Matt, what are you drinking today? So I'm offsetting the weird story with the most bland, maybe, thing. I'm kicking back a light beer tonight. I'm drinking a Michelob Ultra, which I know you might be thinking, mm. wow, that's probably the last thing that you had in your fridge. No, I sought this out because I think this is the best generic light beer that exists. I'm sorry, this podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> it's an opinion. It doesn't have to be the party line, but it's my personal line. <laughs> I will I will respect your truth, even if I will condemn you, and I am already planning out the written condemnation and your expulsion from the party. It's fine. I, I deserve it. Uh, what are you drinking <laughs> this week? This week, I am drinking Viking Blood. I don't, oh. There's one O. I don't know why. From Dansmjod, which is a Nordic honey wine with hibiscus and hops added. Uh, my dad gave this to me when we had dinner the other day. And so I'm super excited to get absolutely blasted during the episode <laughs> because this is almost 20% and it really does not taste like it. Oh my so. gosh. Wow. And points out in the back of this that fermented honey is one of the oldest fermented beverages known to man. Okay. So that's cool. Drinking, drinking a bit of history there. You could say I'm, you could say I'm worldly. Bringing the history into the podcast, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Andrei Sinyavsky's Prince. Oh boy, we could Prince, Prince. If that sounds awkward, it does in Russian too. It's not a real word. It looks awkward in English too. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, you may or may not have heard of Andrei Sinyavsky before, but he's a super interesting guy we're not going to go too much into his life uh, i'm going to be talking a little bit more around the context for this story before we get into it but 
I think it does help to know a little bit about him. Andrei Sinyavsky was born in 1925, uh, was the son of a, a man who was arrested several times by the Bolsheviks. So not a great start off in terms of life in the early Soviet Union, but he actually managed to make it fine. Despite this, Sinyavsky was actually grew up not to be too much of an outcast. He, during World War II, was drafted into the Red Army after he graduated from school, later became a philology student, went on to become a grad student, and became a, a writer after, you know, school after school, joined the Gorky Institute of World Literature, uh, taught at Moscow State University's Faculty of Journalism, and by the end of 1960, he was admitted to the Union of Soviet Writers. So by all accounts, doing great. In fact, he's almost kind of a, a model of what the new Soviet Union was producing in terms of writers. Now, at the same time, though, he was writing somewhat critically about the Soviet Union, which he had the good sense not to publish under his own name in the USSR. So he, along with a friend of his, Yuli Daniel, sent their works uh, through a, a member of the French embassy to France to be published abroad under different names. The name that he chose was Abram Turtz. Eventually, the KGB was able to figure out exactly who was publishing these works, and in 1966, both Yuli Daniel and Andrei Sinyavsky were put on trial. And this is a relatively famous trial, and we'll be talking a little bit more about it later. The end result of this was that Sinyavsky and Daniel were, were convicted and sentenced to hard labor. Daniel for five years, Sinyavsky for seven years. Following his seven years of labor, Sinyavsky emigrates to France, where he becomes a professor and lives there until his death in 1997. So, when reading the story, there is sometimes, I think, a tendency to immediately see it as a... that Sinyavsky's writing critically and politically about the Soviet Union. Were you to walk away, I don't think you'd be wrong in doing that. But I do think you'd be walking away with a somewhat incomplete picture. At his trial, Sinyavsky stood up and actually gave an interesting, apparently off-the-cuff remark, and this is what he said. The question arises, what is propaganda and what is literature? The viewpoint of the prosecution is that literature is a form of propaganda and that there are only two types of propaganda, pro-Soviet or anti-Soviet. I cannot accept this. In my unpublished story, Hwens, there is a sentence that I feel I can apply to myself. Just think, if I am simply different from others, they have to start cursing me. Well, I am different, but I do not regard myself as an enemy. I am a Soviet man, and my works are not hostile works. Now, of course, he, he is saying that at a trial, so you can expect, to a certain extent, he would not be saying that he's an anti-Soviet person. Probably wouldn't be a good strategy. <laughs> no, not a great strategy, uh, considering that he's pleading innocent, which is really what makes this case interesting from a from a legal point of view because he was being tried for writing works and, and it's interesting that it brings up hints because hints is not one of the works that he was being tried for it was it had not been published at that point but he does choose to bring it up which is a bit risky but i think that's why it makes it really interesting because he is in this in this turn of phrase admitting that he sees himself as, as someone different for the society he's in uh for the time period he's in but he's not saying that he is uh, an anti-Soviet writer. I think it's sometimes it can be a mistake to lump him in with other quote-unquote dissident writers. Oftentimes, Sinyavsky has been compared to Solzhenitsyn, and there's a tendency to kind of simplify writers into being pro-communist or anti-communist in terms of emigre dissident writers at this time. But Sinyavsky is, is a bit more 
complex because I think it'd be wrong to say that he was simply an anti-Soviet writer. He does repeatedly defend himself as a Soviet man, although of course this is set at a trial. But he's not simple like that. He's a he's a complex person, and he certainly he has his criticisms of the society in which he lives. In an earlier essay he wrote under Abram Turtz's name, uh, which is called On Socialist Realism, he, he writes with a sense of awareness of his society. He writes, So that prisons should vanish forever, we built new prisons. So that all frontiers should fall, we surround ourselves with a Chinese wall. So that work should become a rest and a pleasure, we introduced forced labor. So that not one drop of blood would be shed, we killed and killed and killed. But in this same work, he also defends the society in which he's from. And keep in mind, this was not published under his own name. This is him writing anonymously and publishing in another country. He writes, yes, we live in communism. It resembles our aspirations about as much as the Middle Ages resembled Christ, modern Western man resembles the free Superman, and man resembles God. But all the same, there is some resemblance, isn't there? And in this work, he calls for a restructuring of, of the art in the Soviet Union because with the death of Stalin, you're really no longer able to carry on the same faith that you had before. Um, and he, he writes, the, the strength of a theological system, which he's comparing the USSR to, resides in its constancy, harmony, and order. Once you admit that God carelessly sinned with Eve and becoming jealous of Adam sent him off to labor at land reclamation, the whole concept of the creation falls apart, and it is impossible to restore the faith. In this case, he's obviously restoring, comparing God with Stalin here and saying that the faith is kind of broken, and he, he argues, therefore, for a phantasmagorgic art with a hypothesis instead of a purpose. And up to this point, of course, Soviet realism is really concerned with writing explanatory texts or, or a text that show you what you should be aspiring to and he's kind of calling for a text that resembles it does not have clear goals but instead is putting forth ideas to us so i think in this in this work we're kind of seeing that that Sinyavsky is is grappling with the ups and downs in the society in which he lives and you can broadly apply this to historic events obviously when he's being uh, when he is put on trial it's close to his heart and that he chooses to cited off the cuff, but maybe that's why we should be looking into it today, because it's certainly a complex and multi-layered story. Also, it's just really strange. Yes. And you know that I'm a fan of the strange star story. I do know. I do know. And I I, <laughs> <laughs> I see why when I brought this to you, you were like, it's already in the list. It's already in the list, baby. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what 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 happens in, in... I keep wanting to say Mike Pence. What happens in Pence? <laughs> <laughs> so the story starts as all great short stories start doing laundry and our main character uh, whose name we somewhat later find out is andre kazimirovich is doing his laundry and he's ruminating over over life and the way that people conduct their hygiene and whatnot and he looks over and he, he notices that there is a man who looks kind of like him, who he describes as a hunchback. Throughout the story, the, the hunchback is kind of a marker for something. We don't know exactly what. It's just something that resembles the narrator and that he feels resembles himself. It's clearly enough to kind of get his attention. And so he's, uh, he's interested. And we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. We got almost a detective-esque beginning. After Andre is going to, to finish up his laundry, presumably, he, he goes home and his friend, Veronica, is there. Uh, and, and he notes that Veronica is 
is really into him and he he does does not feel the same way he he doesn't understand sexual attraction and he doesn't really understand uh how to get this girl to just leave <laughs> him alone uh and 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 they're talking a little bit one of their neighbors is upset with him for uh, you know making a mess in the bathroom for you know water and whatnot uh, as we find out this guy loves to soak in the tub this man loves to soak that's uh you know but it's not ideal to be reported to the authorities uh and, and he notes for himself it would be especially risky because he is you know presumably not registered uh, as, as we'll find out he's Quite, quite alien in several different interpretations in the society. So Veronica, you know, cooks him dinner as he's ruminating over how cruel it is that she, she's cooked chickens and other things and whatnot. And, and he's really thinking about how cruel it is that Veronica has fallen in love with him and he has to now kind of deal with that. He, he doesn't like that. And he's a little bit confused because he knows that Veronica has two other people that she's dating right now. So he's kind of like, why are you into me? I am just a hunchback. I've got nothing to offer. I don't have a high paying salary. Um, and he's using that to mask the fact that he's just, you know, not into other people, really. Uh, he's not sexually attracted to people. So at this point, Veronica really tries to tries to come on to him, not just like being nice, making him dinner and whatnot. Uh, but she's, she's trying to have sex with him. And he says, you know what? I've I've looked up anatomy books, but I've actually never really seen what women look like. So I think I'll you know I'll entertain it. I'll see what it is and what it's all about. And he is one of probably the weirdest sex scenes ever. Uh, I don't think they actually have sex. He just remarks on how terrible and strange everything is. And in his head, he recites a Lermontov poem: uh, "Fair as an angel of heaven, as a fiend, cruel and false," uh, talking about women's. Their dual nature. So basically, he says, you know, I, I don't want to do this. I actually got to go to the office real quick. Um, so uh, sorry, sorry about that. I know you're naked right now, but I really have to go to the office. The head bookkeeper, you know, the crazy typist, all for only six fifty rubles a month. Uh, and this is after he has carefully examined the <clears throat> quote genital apparatus, which shoots out ready-made infants like a catapult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's perhaps a scene that will haunt me forever. <laughs> It's a scene that, when I reread the story the second time, made a lot more sense. Like mm-hmm. going into it, I, I was I had a lot of theories about what this was meaning for the person. The coming back into it, I was like, okay, well, if you read this literally, it just even without any more metaphorical dimension, it just literally makes sense for who he is. Yes, yes. So uh, after uh, saying that he has to go to work, uh, he actually goes and he he tra- tracks down the man that he had seen earlier at the laundromat, who he's been kind of keeping keeping tabs on he sits down uh, at dinner with at, at first the the guy's wife and he comes out to dinner and they're you know eating chatting a little bit and eventually he kind of says he wants to talk to leopold alone and he really kind of <laughs> he gets gets right in it with with leopold and he's asking how long since you left and leopold is very confused and he's like left where and so there's this whole this whole scene where Andre, the narrator, is trying to extract some answer out of Leopold because they're both hunchbacks. So our narrator, Andre, thinks that they must be from the same place. And we don't really know as the reader what exactly they're they're talking about or what Andre is fishing for necessarily. Yeah. And he's he's by the end, he's getting so agitated that he's literally grabbing this guy and, and yelling, 
prance, prance into his face. Um, and he's speaking of the homeland, and he's like, he he's like, oh my god, he's gotten too into the part. And in the translation, which is not a phrase I love, but I think it act, aptly describes what is he's saying here is, is he's gone native. He doesn't know anymore, and I can't believe this woman has shacked up with him. Even among humans, bestiality isn't respectable. <laughs> which. <laughs> Somebody, somebody lovely turns of phrases in this this uh, short story oh, yeah. that I just can't not repeat to myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he yeah, he's so far in denial that he can't even believe that this man is not part of his group. And uh, eventually, this this leads nowhere as he eventually has to realize that poor Leopold is a normal human who he has just massively ruined him and his family's dinner by yelling in his face <laughs> about the homeland and whatnot. So then. We actually get the the end of the story is a little bit of the background and the what next for our hunchback character. And he explains that he's a creature from another world, not even from Mars or one of your Venuses, but a remote place that you don't even have names for. And he explains that they were going to a holiday resort and then on the way their their plane or ship was hit by a meteorite. Uh, well, he says, let's say it was a meteorite to make it easier for you. Uh, and then, you know, they f- they fell down for seven and a half months of their time and they landed here. And ever since then, he's just <laughs> he's just been a bookkeeper in the Soviet Union. So, yeah, he, f- he fell into a-, a forest and he didn't understand where he was. Turns out he was in Siberia and he, he was rescued by some of the Yakut people and he learned the language and got an education and whatnot. And for a while, he taught in Irkutsk. He lived in Siberia for a little bit, and he didn't like it because the weather wasn't what he wanted. So eventually, he settled in Moscow, which we all know has a wonderful climate to live in. And (laughs) he's been there (laughs) ever since. (laughs) So he's lamenting that nobody understands his tale. He would just become super famous if anyone were to really find out what was happening. So uh, he just, he's he's not into that. All he wants to do is sit in his bath. That's how he rehydrates. And that's as we kind of find out is why there was the water on the floor in, in the bathroom in the beginning, because despite being a communal apartment, he just kind of sits in the tub for lengthy periods of time to rehydrate. So at the end of the at the end of the story, uh, there is a, a crack in the tub, which it's what causes Andre to catch a cold or something similar. He kind of starts to get sick and he blames it on the women earlier that had kind of threatened him or whatever for the mess in the bathroom and said that she's out to destroy him and so he kind of he he settles in his room and he's sick and he's there for like a week and a half poor veronica is the only one to come in to check on him when he starts crying out for help and she brings him water she's well honestly being (laughs) quite nice trying trying to help him and uh, he just says give me the flask and go away because he needs to, to to bathe himself or to water himself and she just doesn't understand uh, that they're communicating in two completely different languages. And that's kind of the end of their story. He, he notes that she, at this point, was married. She married one of the other people, the, the actor who she was seeing before. And he's really happy for her because uh, he doesn't have, he's happy for her, but he's also happy for himself, not having to explain the situation to her anymore. So that's kind of the, the end of our story. He says that he's going to... He's going to leave Moscow and he's going to he's going to Siberia? Yeah, he's going back to where he landed, right? Yeah. And then it ends on an ode to the native land. Ode, native land, Prince. And there's a bunch of other words that are like, some of them are like, 
vaguely kind of Russian. Some of them definitely aren't. They're just kind of nonsense words and sounds. And it's supposed to be his language, I suppose. He cries out. I mean, maybe this is an indication of his death. He's, Kens, Gogri, Tuzero, Skip. Gogri, Grogi, Gogri, Tuzero, Skip, which is the few words he remembers, but maybe so far away from his past, he starts slipping into extant words like bonjour, gutna bend, boo boo boo, meow meow, hence really showing how much he's he slipped away. Perhaps the real human was him all along. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> um so that's ET but with nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you like the story? I love this story. What did you think about it? I, okay, good, good. Okay, this is like, if you gave, and this is like a really vulgar thing to say. Vulgar, I mean, as in base, not as in like bad. But if you gave Kafka Google's sense of humor <laughs> and then told him to like rewrite E.T., this is what you would get. <laughs> or I mm-hmm. guess more accurately, rewrite War of the Worlds, really. Well, it, it does have a very Gogolian aspect to it in the sense that it's very much uh, almost kind of that ska style of just... You got this guy and he's kind of telling you a story and he does these weird kind of interjections and digressions where, you know, he's telling you about the meteorite and he's like, well, let's just say it's a meteorite because I'll make it easier for you. Yeah. And it kind of breaks in and takes you out in a way of the story. Yeah, absolutely. How did, how did you walk away from it when you first read it? Well, admittedly, I read this in dialogue with in the same week as I as I had read some Solzhenitsyn. And, and so I, I, I came into it with a, with a certain viewpoint that I was inspecting for yeah but on, on a story level i think it's fantastic it was really fun i've it's like one of those stories where you just have no idea what's happening like why why is this man comparing himself to a cactus the whole time why does he sit by a drain pipe for three minutes letting the water run all over him it's just weird <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's one of the things i really enjoyed about it i went in i i do all my research for these episodes after i read our text so i went in with very little idea about what was going on here and that made it really, really fun. I mean, there's so many scenes which are just like the part where he is talking about food. It's just I, I just I love that. This line is probably going to stick with me. The sadism of cookery has always amazed me. Would be chickens <laughs> are eaten in liquid form. The innards of pigs are stuffed with their own flesh. A gut that swallowed itself garnished with stillborn chickens. What else, when you think of it, is scrambled eggs with sausage? <laughs> Weed is treated more unmercifully still. They cut it beat it crush it to dust this like utter alienation from just completely normal processes is just so fun to read again this is like even outside of just an analysis perspective so many moments of looking at very normal human things from a completely alien perspective is just fun (laughs) it's just a really humorous moment that you get so many times over and over Mm -hmm. which does play into like an element of alienation but even outside of like trying to analyze that it's just funny I, th- I think it's definitely it's definitely comical yeah oh, okay i'm kind of curious because i mentioned all this at the beginning of the episode and this is how you read it when you're when you're looking for certain things when you when you said you went into this kind of looking for certain themes what were you expecting from the story and what was the perspective you were taking into it well i was expecting this to be a story about gulags because i knew really nothing about it and then I read it and I said, what in the world did I just read? And I had to go back and reread it for class several times. I wasn't looking at it like uh, an author telling me that the Soviet Union was bad. What I was looking for was traces of what it was like for people coming back from forced labor camps trying to reintegrate into society. And that was a lot of what we had kind of been reading prior to this. And I saw a lot of the same patterns 
emerging from this that I did from those, and particularly the the language, because it's fairly well documented from Solzhenitsyn that uh, a lot of the prisoners at these forced labor camps started to develop their own language for a variety of different things. But so yeah, so he clearly has certain words that are different to him, that mean a lot to him, but mean nothing to anybody else on this planet that are describing this very unique experience that he's clearly been through. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's another part that reminded me actually of when we were reading Zuleika, where he was talking about the distant place that he was from. And he said, you don't even have names for such places. And if you spread out all the star maps and charts in existence before me, I honestly couldn't show you where that splendid point of light my birthplace has got to. It kind of reminded me of of the, the part where they had kind of started building what would be their forced labor camp. And it, mm. it didn't have a name. Nobody had planned to go there. I don't even think it was mapped out. They just were there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I saw a lot of parallels between those few aspects. It's really interesting to me that you brought up language because even before I had any context, that was one of the major things that I was paying attention to. Yeah, it's really in your face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and <clears throat> the part where this creature, or Andre, the part where Andre is, is telling you why he does not want to be found out about, it's really deeply tied to language. And he says, I would become famous. I would be like Leo Tolstoy or Gulliver or Hercules or Galileo Galilei. And he says, in spite of this, no one would understand a thing. How could they understand me when I am unable to express myself in their language? I can find nothing to say. I can only see a short, solid gogri, hear a rapid vzugliagyu, and an indescribably beautiful prince beams down upon my trunk. Fewer and fewer such words remain in my memory. It's almost like Wittgensteinian, this like relationship to language and how the, the, it itself has maintained so much meaning for the individual. And I, the thing that makes it so interesting to me is that this kind of almost alienation from language, because uh, our, our hero, so to speak, Andre, is slowly losing that, even though that's what makes him able to express himself and in the very end when veronica is, is telling him that she really did love him and she's kind of crying over him when he's begging her for the water her speech really breaks down and, and she's saying to me you were the most handsome man on earth andre kazimirovich the most man and when you laughed at me so cruelly make an end of myself loved won't conceal from you worthy man fell in love man human humanity man to man this is all like dot 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 human Mahu, humanu, human, manhu, umanu. Her ability to construct language is breaking down, and she's getting completely alienated from language itself, or even her ability to express herself. She's, she's being reduced to nothing without that language, um, which is you're seeing reflected in 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 Andre when he's he's slowly losing himself over the years, or in the very last moments of his life, he's not even able to express himself in his own language. He's just he's throwing out whatever words are coming to mind, and it's there with. Veronica and this this kind of fundamental alienation that comes from not being able to really use which we consider so basic to ourselves. Okay, so I have a question for you. What do you think the significance of prince means for this story? Because it's upon first hearing the the plot, you might assume that prince is the name of the planet or the people that this character Andre is from, but it's not. It's uh it's the feeling of well, it's an undescribable feeling according to us, but it is a pleasant feeling of some sort. Apparently, one that is like the thing that Andre's really holding on to. I think that's a, that was a good point out there. I think every language seems to have a couple, oh, at least a couple words where 
when you go to translate it, people just kind of throw up their hands and they're like, I don't know, I can I can describe it to you, but I can't translate it verbatim. And to me, it kind of just further accentuates the way that he feels in society, which is that just isolated, not being able to explain to people things in his native language. What it is, I, I don't exactly know, but it's a means of almost like permanent dissociation between him and the current society where he knows like he has the feeling like he's never going to be able to fit in. Right. I mean, that's something that I found. Obviously, there are many ways you could read the story and we could really have like an entire podcast on every single layer of this. But when I walked away from this, I very much had the impression that it is a story about feeling like you are not quite able to relate to the people around you. And you have mm-hmm. a, a fundamentally outsider perspective on the, the things that you're existing in. Because you can look at like him looking at food, for example, literally and, and laugh because it's just a humorous scene about an alien looking at human things. Or you could look at it and see it as an example of how someone who is just unable to really understand the things about around him trying to interact with their everyday life. I mean, I think there's mm-hmm. no better example than when uh, we have when Veronica reveals that she's naked to Andre and and most quote unquote normal books you know you'd probably have a maybe a description that follows which is meant to be titillating and that's kind of what follows here because he he does kind of go to the same features you might expect but he interprets them in a very different way when she reveals that she's naked he almost immediately after like well okay I, I I I've read anatomy textbooks but I really don't know what naked women look like let's see and he says, it was, I repeat, <laughs> horrible. Um, and he looks down her body and he's like, okay. He's like, okay, I see white breasts in front. And he's like, at first they look like secondary arms amputated above the elbow, but each of them terminated in a round nipple like a push button. And he's like looking down, he's, he's just, this is a completely alien thing to him. And he's having a hard time even understanding it. Like, is there anything more you could say, say normal than just a human body? Just the basic features, which... Mm-hmm. everyone or most people roughly share and he's just looking at it from a completely alien perspective and he can't even understand it which again you could look at it on a literal level or you could look at it as a representation of of someone who's just not really able to relate to the things around them even things that are everyone else seems to understand like sex in this case yeah well i think i think it's it's fun funny ish i guess yeah uh <laughs> well just because the whole story is a story about things in which a normal normal quote-unquote person would see as normal yeah just somebody who was living in the society wouldn't have been able to write 20 pages about what this person is writing 20 pages about because it's just simply not that interesting if you're coming at it from the point of view of somebody who does fit in and can relate to different things going on but like you said uh he he does not and it's not only that he doesn't relate it's the overwhelming sense that everyone else kind of seems to be fine and being okay with what's going on and understanding it as normal and so i think that's kind of when he sees that hunchback that's like his his sigh of relief like oh my gosh finally somebody that i can talk to about how weird everybody around here is like uh about veronica just try to have sex with me and i'm just trying to get trying to get a bath over here Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and then he sees that after that conversation that you know, although hunchbacks are looked down upon or they're viewed differently, the physical features don't really matter. For him, the physical features are really just a representation of, well, for him, that's just because he's got extra arms. So he's got to, he takes on the appearance of a hunchback because he's got to do something with all the arms up what we would recognize as his back. Um, mm-hmm. But he looks at this, this other person who he thought was like him and he's like, oh my God, it's just, 
you're human. The fundamental humanity of a person is, is just, that's inherent. That's an inherent feature that's beyond anything I could even describe as physical. And up to this point, I'm so alienated from these physical things. And now he's kind of looking at this and is, is realizing what humans are made of. And it's just, just a certain internal makeup that just makes them all general, even if they themselves will look at each other and see these physical differences and create barriers between themselves. And, mm -hmm. and really... I mean, I don't think it was intended to be like intended to be some anti ableist tract, but unintentionally, no, no. that's kind of what it is. That it is he's looking yeah. at what what essentially makes a person a person, and it's something that's very inherent. Mm -hmm. Well, if I could steer us back to partially language for one second, because there was yeah, one thing I wanted to laugh about was when he compares uh, the the cooked fish to Christ. <laughs> so when he compares the the fish to Christ, when he says the torments of Christ, basically. There's not really anything compared with the agonies of a fish jerked out of water on a hook. At least Christ knew what it was all for. <laughs> um, it shows this really interesting thing where it's... Well, he, here I think he's showing kind of the importance of language to culture. Uh, for most people, we probably wouldn't compare Christ with a fish out of water. Uh, but for him, like all of these things, like sacred or not, are like compressed onto one plane. And he's trying to make sense out of it. That was just one line that I thought was funny. It mm. made me chuckle and I wanted to bring it up. <laughs> That's fair. It's also a strangely existential statement that yes. the suffering, <laughs> great suffering of, of, in this case, Christ is tougher than the small suffering of a creature because at least, you know, you can, certain people might understand what their suffering is for, whereas everyone else... <laughs> fish people day-to-day -day. what's your stuff what's our what's our day-to-day -day suffering for i don't know who knows we don't have the same same features as a great leader or in this case a, a godhead dying on earth mm -hmm. uh, which again don't think it was intended but definitely something you could read into it yeah this was after i had read a, a lot of uh stories about people who were sent to labor camps basically not understanding for what and you could you know, it's interesting. This is where I kind of feel like some of the things, it's, I don't think it'd be incorrect to read it as, it's kind of a critique of prison camps veiled with an extraterrestrial sort of thing. And it's, it's not veiled just for the sake of perhaps getting it past the censor. I don't think he thought this was getting past the censor. Uh, I think it, it's veiled to kind of, just to give you a completely different look at society that we all take for granted. I mean, we don't take this particular society for granted, but, you know, the ones in which we live in general. Yeah, there are other things you could look at in this, but I think to you, I, I'm strongly, I was attached to the kind of alienation aspect, and I think you're, mm -hmm. <laughs> you see a lot in the language and relation to, to a political dimension almost in terms of the story, but there's like, this is not, I don't want to say vague, because it's really not vague, but it's, it is readable in a way that you can come away with many different interpretations, um, mm -hmm. which are not contradictory, really. Yeah, it could be just E.T. with nightmares. That's fine. <laughs> it's it's Kurt Vonnegut wrote E.T. or War of the Worlds or but it's it's it is a funny, interesting short story, which is just easy to read. And you can read it over and over again and keep finding new things that that amuse you or you latch on to or you, you find new meaning in. And it's like not even 20 pages long. So go crazy. Get out there. Go do it. Buy it on one of our affiliate links on our website. Go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Alas. Alas. Before we totally wrap up, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? 
I have been drinking a lot of a lot of mead, a lot of mead. Yeah. Um, I am easily like a seven or an eight. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't even have a joke. I just. I'm just pretty mm. blasted. How about you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's really hot in my room right now because I turned off the fan so I wouldn't make background noise while I was recording. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like I kind of feel like the character in the story where I just want to take some water to douse myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I I close my window. I'm so hot in here now. Yeah, I don't know where that puts me on a scale, but around there. <laughs> <laughs> around heat flashes. Yeah, somewhere in that range. Okay. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> okay, well, what are we reading next week, which we'll hopefully be cooler for? Oh, boy, I wish. Uh, next week, we're going to be continuing our summer of Anna Karenina. We're going to be reading part two of the novel. So, you know, come join our Discord if you want to chat more about it. We're going to be doing a lot of fun discussions, get a little, a little spicy book club going. So if you're interested in uh, learning more about Anna Karenina, feel free to check our show notes or go to our website, tipsytoolstory.com. You can access it there. Absolutely. If you're interested in joining our, our Levin debates, which I assume will be happening. They're going to be raging. In the <laughs> Choose your side. <laughs> Pro Levin or anti Levin or early early stage Levin versus late stage Levin. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have them all. Have Fair them all enough. All right. Well, if it doesn't if it doesn't start by the time this episode hits, I will I will be starting them. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting is not free, and grad school, as I'm constantly reminded uh, and constantly reminding myself, does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.